I'm reading from Matthew this morning, Matthew 27, 45 through 61. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elwa, Elwa, lama sabatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and mother of Zebedee's sons. And as the evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Jesus took, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in, the, in his own new tomb that he had cut out of rock. He rolled, it, he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Well, thanks to Jeanette for reading our passage this morning. I knew I could trust you with a line of Aramaic there in the passage. That's a tough draw. So we're in our, uh, we have this week and two more in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've come to the scene of the action, the crucifixion. And I want to take you back into the first century for a minute here because if there's anything in the first century that a cross was the sign of, it was not hope. In the first century, a cross is not something you would put on a building, namely because a cross was a symbol of torture in the ancient world. You put a cross on the front of your building, people would wonder if it was a torture chamber. It's not something that you would talk about in polite company. In fact, one of the authors writing about this same time, or just before this, Cicero, said that the cross is not something that you would mention in polite company. It's not something that you would talk about. It's not something you would wear. It's not something you would want to be associated with. So the question for us is, so how did that change? How did it go from something you wouldn't mention to a cliché in our culture? Something that you could wear a cross and not even be a Christian just as a a nice piece of jewelry, which 2,000 years ago you wouldn't ever even want to be associated with. What happened on this day of history, this Friday during the Passover feast in the first century, that not only changed the cross, the image of the cross, but changed the world 
forever. There's a great book on this topic called The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright. And here's how it opens. When Jesus of Nazareth died the horrible death of crucifixion at the hand of the Roman army, nobody would have thought that he was a hero. Nobody was saying as they hurriedly laid his body in the tomb that this death had been a splendid victory or a heroic martyrdom. This movement, which had in any case been something of a ragtag group of followers, was over. Nothing had changed. Another leader had been brutally liquidated. This was the sort of thing that the Romans did best. Caesar was on his throne. Death, as usual, had the last word. Except in this case, it didn't. Except in this case, it didn't. See, the most, the most normal thing would have been for Jesus to be crucified, to die, to be buried, and never to be heard from again. In fact, we're removed from this because we don't read a lot of what's going on outside the Bible in the first century, but many, many messiahs in the century before Jesus and after claimed to be something special. And they would gather together a bunch of followers, and sometimes they would even have big military victories. They would do miracles and then they would die, and we sitting here couldn't name a single one of them. So what was different about Jesus? What was different about Jesus? I, I start this way because I want you to realize that the thing that was different about Jesus wasn't the brutality of his execution. That, that was actually pretty commonplace in Rome at the time. We, we tend a lot to look at these crucifixion narratives and, and go into all the gory details about how brutal Jesus' death was, and that, that's an important part of it. But have you ever noticed that the gospel writers spend almost no time describing the actual death of Jesus? I mean, Matthew is especially brief. At the, in the section on the death of Jesus, it just says in verse 50, in almost just kind of a pedestrian sentence, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. It's left to preachers to fill in all the details of what happened, and he probably suffocated in the blood loss and all that. The gospel writers seem not that interested in the physical details of Jesus' death. Now, one reason for that is because this was normal for them. Everybody knew what happened to somebody who was crucified. They'd put you up outside of town, totally naked, to expose you to all the people who were walking by, and they would see in real time what happened when somebody was crucified. But there's actually a deeper reason why the gospel writers don't spend their time on this. It's because they're spending their time on something else. The, the gospel writers, and Matthew specifically, it is not as concerned in what happened as he is why it happened. All the gospel writers are trying to tell us why the death of Jesus matters. Not just that it happened, not just how it happened, but what was the reason behind it. And Matthew especially, we've been going through Matthew since January, and Matthew has this great convention of taking these little stories of encounters with Jesus. And you think about all the people in the Gospel of Matthew that have met and encountered Jesus. And Matthew has a way, you know, his, his, his Gospel is the disciples' Gospel. It is one that they used in the early church as a manual for somebody who was new to the faith. 
They say, you need, you need to read the Gospel of Matthew so you can understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. One of the ways that Matthew does this is he takes all these encounters, and instead of just describing somebody who meets Jesus, he invites you to have an encounter with Jesus through these stories. The, the goal of Matthew is not that you would grow in historical knowledge or that you would learn a few new things. The goal of Matthew is that by the time we get to this point in the gospel, you would be forced to have an encounter with the living, breathing Jesus Christ. And the crucifixion is no different. This passage this morning is not to convey to you the historical details of Jesus' death, although those are important. The purpose of this passage is that you would encounter Jesus on the cross. That you would actually have to come face to face with the reason that he went there and the role that you play in Jesus on the cross. So this morning, I, I want to list three reasons and turn your attention to three reasons why Jesus went to the cross. I want to look at what Matthew is really trying to tell us about Jesus' death. The first one is Jesus' death confirms the promises of God. Jesus' death confirms the promises of God. One of the reasons that Jesus went to the cross is because God had promised that this was going to happen. Jesus had been telling people that this was going to happen. Even though his disciples really didn't believe him until the very last moment, he had been saying all through the gospel, I'm going to be put to death in the end. Things are going well now, but guys, things are going to change. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and the religious elite, they're going to turn me over, and it's going to be really, uh, they're going to be trumped up charges. It's going to be a raw deal, but they are going to put me to death in the end. And everybody's like, no, 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 we're going to win in the end. And finally, Jesus really does die like he said he would. Well, there was another prophecy, though, that he was going to rise from the dead. Three days later, he says, I'm going to rise from the dead. And people didn't really believe him when he said this because people don't typically rise from the dead. But, but they had this kind of in the back of their mind, like, maybe he's telling the truth. Because right after our passage, they take his body and they put it in the tomb. And the religious leaders are like, hey, just in case, maybe we should send some guards over there. Just in case something happens, we should send some soldiers over and make sure that nothing happens at the tomb. And we'll talk next week about what happens when Jesus does rise from the dead. But there are more promises of God in this passage than we have time to talk about this morning. There's a confirmation of all that God had been doing up until the crucifixion that culminates with the death of his son on the cross. Have you ever noticed in this passage, back to our theme of what the gospel writers include and don't include, it, it says that when the sixth hour came, so this is like noon, there was darkness over all the land. And in fact, from that point on, we don't get a lot of what was happening partially because it was dark. Right? There's no lights at this point. There's no street lights. He's outside of town. It's dark. But, but what we do get was what was heard from the cross. There's, a, there's an inordinate amount of attention in the Gospels of what Jesus said. We don't get like the look on his face like you would in a movie, you know, the portrayal of what's going on with Jesus. Instead, you get kind of the soundtrack of what's happening when Jesus dies. And there are great books on this, the seven sayings of the Savior on the cross and all the things that Jesus said. In Matthew, we get a, a little glimpse into what might have been going on in Jesus' mind while he was being crucified. And if you just sat down and read the Gospel of Matthew from start to finish, 
You would not be surprised at all in what comes out of Jesus' mouth on the cross. Because at every pivotal moment in the gospel, Jesus speaks Scripture. In the beginning when he's tempted, he speaks Scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. When he's arguing with the Pharisees and he's having debates over the law, he quotes Scripture. When he's falsely accused, he quotes Scripture. When he is being led off to his death, he quotes Scripture. And when he's hanging on the cross, he quotes Scripture. See, there's something that's probably worth a lesson in and of itself in what's going on in Jesus' mind at the worst moment of his life. When Jesus is hanging there in excruciating pain, what's going on in his inner life? He's meditating on the law of God. See, when Jesus yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just saying that as a statement of fact. He's saying that because that's Scripture. That's something that David had described a thousand years before that was perfectly fitting for this occasion for Jesus to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, just kind of an interesting thing here in the text, you know, it's, it's interesting that they include this line of Aramaic here in the text, and they don't translate it. And you kind of wonder, you know, the Bible wasn't originally written in English with this one Aramaic piece. It was written in Greek. They translate all the rest. Why don't they just translate this one line? It's like the translators not know Aramaic or something. Well, it's because what he says, Eloi, Eloi, that sounds like the first part of the name of Elijah. So you see after this, these people in what seems like a totally bizarre thing to say, they say, wait, let's see if he's calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah is going to come down and save him. Because Eloi and the name Elijah both mean my God. Elijah's name means my God is God. My God is Yah. My God is Yahweh. That is who I put my trust in. And shouting out at the top of his lungs, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Every Jew that didn't think he was calling Elijah would have turned back to Psalm 22. And maybe you've heard Psalm 22 read with the crucifixion before. It's an almost exact match of what Jesus is going through. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night I find no rest. See, Hebrew people would have memorized these psalms, and they would have sung these psalms at certain parts of the year. And so when Jesus does that, for us, we take that line in abstraction. We say, he must feel abandoned by God. God must have abandoned him. You get the, there's many books that have been written about the abandonment of Jesus on the cross. But, but Jesus would be doing something a lot more like in our world, quoting the first line of the chorus of a song in which the whole rest of the song would have come flooding back and it'd be stuck in your head in a way that you couldn't get out of it the rest of the day. And so by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just saying that. He's saying the whole of what comes next. He's saying, I am like a worm and not a man. I've been scorned by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. Bulls encompass me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening lions. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my 
breast. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Isn't this amazing how similar this is to what Jesus is going through? I mean, it's almost like it was written for the crucifixion, but like we said, it was written by David in a season where he felt abandoned by God, and the Spirit working through him is describing the exact same experience that Jesus had on the cross. But I don't want us to end there. The description of what happened to Jesus on the cross is not just the first part of this psalm. It's the second part of this psalm. You, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, help me, Lord. Come quickly to my aid. I will tell my brothers your name in the midst of the congregation. You who are in the midst of the Lord, fear him, praise him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. They will bow down who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity will serve him. And it will be told of the Lord in coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people who have not been born. That he has done it. See, this is what happens in a psalm like Psalm 22. This is called a lament. And in lament, we, I preached on lament this summer. Lament is two things at the same time. A refusal to pretend that reality is any different than it really is. I'm, I'm going to be honest with God. I'm going to describe what's going on. I'm gonna, I, I will commit myself to really saying what's on my heart to God. And in the middle of that, there's a refusal to forget the promises of God. I, I, I will be totally honest with God about how I'm feeling, but I will be totally secure in what God has promised. This is what's happening in Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus is just playing this tape over and over and over in his head. I am abandoned. I feel forsaken. I am attacked. All of this is happening, and yet all the ends of the earth shall remember the Lord and turn to him, and praise him, and worship him because of what Jesus is doing. See, Jesus, when he was in his worst moment, had his best theology. He had everything going wrong physically, but spiritually he was being renewed by the word of God. You know, in other gospels, we get other things that Jesus says on the cross. In Luke, for example, before he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this isn't just kind of like a formal way of him saying, hey, I'm about to die. This is another quotation from Scripture from Psalm 31 that he must have been turning over in his head when he went through Psalm 22. He moved on just a few chapters later to Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save. For you are my rock and my fortress. And you're, for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. And you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus, in this moment, is modeling for us trust in the promises of God. 
You know, Jesus is speaking a promise, but in this moment, he, he actually is a promise. Think about, there's so many layers to this. What, what's happening here is Jesus is dying on the cross, and at the same moment, he's trusting in God's promises to show to his followers, no matter what happens to you, you can trust in the promises of God. But, but at the same time, what happens is we see that Jesus died on the cross for us so that we can know that any other promise of God is trustworthy. So Paul says as much in Romans 8, 31 and 32, which is without a doubt the greatest promise in the Bible. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? It's almost like Paul's reading our minds as we read this. It's like, yeah, but how do I know that God is for me? In verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he give us all things? Think about the logic of this. It's, it's, like, it's like Paul's saying, God already did the hardest, most costly thing he could do. How do you not think he's going to do all the little stuff? He already did the big, difficult thing that could, could never be done outside of sending his son. So you think all this other little stuff in your life isn't going to fall under that umbrella? It'd be like somebody who says, I will give you a loan of a million dollars, interest-free. You say, I'm sorry, I need 10. <laughs> Paul's like, can you believe what he did? That guarantees that he'll do anything else for you. If he sent his only begotten son to die this kind of death for you, all the promises of God are trustworthy. All the promises of God have been stamped with an image of the cross for you. Now, Matthew doesn't just leave it at that. This is, this is a promise for us in what Jesus is saying. We, we can actually take our cue from Jesus that we should be able to trust specific promises of God in our suffering. That's, that's a good takeaway for us. You need some promises of God in your heart and in your mind so that in your worst times, you, like Jesus, can repeat those over and over and over in your head. God works all things for the good of those who love him. I am with you always. I will never abandon you. I will take you by the hand and lead you. You've got to have these promises. But there's another confirmation of God that I want you to see. So after Jesus dies, this is where everybody stops the Bible reading, right? Jesus dies, and then on Good Friday or whenever else we stop the Bible reading, we go and sing another song. But turn your attention to what happens after this. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Jesus cries out, and then he dies, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened. And the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. As I was reading this this week, I'm like, why doesn't this get more play in our sermons? This is crazy stuff that happens after Jesus dies. And I have to say, I think the reason it doesn't is because it's so weird. It's just so weird what happens when Jesus dies. But it, it was interesting, there's a historian named Tom Holland, who's not a Christian, but he's written several amazing books that make this assertion. Whether you're a Christian or not, 
the most influential factor in the way the world is today is Christianity. In fact, he would go so far as to say all the conversations we're having right now about justice and about sexuality and about reform in our society are arguments that only Christians could have. Only Christians can bring the values that you would need, the dignity of the human being and justice in the universe and um, logic and goodness in the public square. Only Christians could establish that. And as a non-Christian, somebody asked him, okay, given all that, what what, what should Christians then be preaching? He says, if you're a Christian, you think the whole fabric of the cosmos was ruptured. When this person, a God and a man, set everything on its head, and if that's the case, if you believe that, you should go ahead and preach all the other weird stuff that comes with it. How about that? If we really believe that at the center of our faith is God who became man who took on flesh and died on the cross and then rose from the dead, it, it, it just baffles me sometimes that it's like people will claim to believe that and then like have trouble with like a snake talking or something in the early chapters of Genesis. I'm like, man, the snake is weird, but you know what's even weirder? A dead person getting up and living again and rising up into heaven and claiming that he reigns over everything. That is way weirder than a talking snake. Or a talking donkey. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. But the weirdest thing in the Bible is that God took on flesh, died on a cross, humiliated, and rose from the dead. And that has something to do with you and me. That's the weirdest thing in the Bible. If you believe that, everything else is pretty easy to believe. God gives us a little sign in this moment that the promises that he has been speaking to his people for thousands of years are about to come true. See, we talked in Matthew chapter 23 and 24 and 25, you get this, this discourse called the Olivet Discourse, which is all about the end of the world, but also actually kind of about the destruction of the temple. And what that passage describes is things like the sun will be blotted out. There'll be darkness. There'll be earthquakes. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. There will be dead people who rise up all of a sudden, Jesus dies, and you know what happens? The sun is blotted out. There are earthquakes. There are rumors of wars. There are people who rise up from the dead. It's almost like God's giving us a little foretaste of, hey, everything that's been promised is going to happen if you give it long enough. Here's here's just a little view. You You get this little bitty group of people. It's almost like in Ezekiel chapter 37 where he goes out into the valley of the dry bones, and and God's like, go ahead and preach to those bones, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's like, are you kidding me? So he's like, get up. And all of a sudden, the bones start to clink together and they start to have flesh covering them. And before you know it, you have this army that's risen up out of this valley. And even Ezekiel can't believe what God has done. It's like the moment Jesus gives up his last breath, the bones start to rattle in the graves. People start to come out at the resurrection. They're even like walking around Jerusalem. This is something that... People, apologists, talk about, you wouldn't put this in the Gospels unless it actually happened, because it'd be very easy for people to say, that did not happen. People did not rise from the dead and walk around Jerusalem, but he's like, you guys remember when that happened? You guys remember? People rose from the dead, which is a message to us, and you will rise from the dead. 
you will rise from the dead for the very same reason that they did, because Jesus opened up the way to life forever in his death. The death of Jesus is a promise made to you, confirmed by God in what happened, that everything he says is trustworthy. Everything he says is going to happen is going to happen. The second thing out of these three that I want to point your attention to is when Jesus died, the way to God was reopened. The way to God was reopened. Here's the most significant thing that happens. is right in the middle here in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a powerful confirmation of a specific promise of God. Do you remember all the way back at the beginning of the Bible? Adam and Eve, they sin, they're pushed out of the garden, there's a flaming sword and an angel who are guarding the garden, and it's like you can never come back in to where God is. You're not worthy because of your sin. Death is in the world now. You are separated from God. And it even says after Cain and Abel that Cain, because of his sin against Abel, is pushed further, further, further to the east of Eden, far away from God. And when God calls his people out of Egypt and he has them go to Mount Sinai, he tells them, what you're going to do is you're going to build this tabernacle in the wilderness. And my presence is going to come down and be in that tabernacle, but, but because of your sin, you and I cannot actually be next to each other or you will die. So what happened was he built this tabernacle and his presence comes down, but it's separated by this curtain from all the people. And when they build the temple, the same thing, you have the outer area of the temple, you have the inner area of the temple, and then you have the innermost part of the temple, which is called the Holy of Holies, which for us is the holiest place, because the presence of God dwells there. And there is a curtain, it's taller actually even than the tip of this building, that comes down and separates the presence of God from the people. Now, the curtain is not protecting God, okay? The, the curtain is protecting the people from God. The presence of God is so holy and so overwhelming and so strong that when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies one time a year, they would tie a rope around his foot just in case he died when he came into the presence of God and they could drag him out afterwards. And when Jesus breathes up his last, it was, it was Passover week. We talked last week about the Last Supper. This was the moment where every year they would remember the deliverance that God had wrought out of Egypt. They would take a lamb and they would select a perfect, unblemished lamb and they would sacrifice it so that the wrath of God would be stayed for their sin. But this Passover was different. On the triumphal entry, Jesus rides in, and it's as if God has selected a lamb who, now that he has been offered, the true sacrifice has been made. You know, the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can never truly forgive sin. So we have to get out of our mind the teaching that in the Old Testament, they were forgiven because they were offering sacrifices. That's actually not what was happening. The sacrifices of the Old Testament are like an IOU for a debt that will someday be paid in the future. 
right? This, the lambs in the Old Testament and the bulls and the goats and, and the two turtle doves that you bring and all of this, these are placeholders for a true sacrifice that is going to come someday. And at the death of Jesus, the true sacrifice has now been offered. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, has been slain. He is the true priest. He is the true Lamb. His is the true blood. And the true payment for sin clears when Jesus rises from the dead. This this means that at the death of Jesus, the way back to God has been reopened. When that curtain tears, it's like God is now on the loose again amongst the people. It's that Jesus' death has reopened the way to God. J.C. Ryle says it this way, if you were to set up an altar or a sacrifice now, it would be like lighting a candle in the middle of the noonday. The sacrifice has been made. Jesus has died, and God is now amongst his people again. You know, the central promise of the Bible is not just that we will be freed from our sins, although that is a promise that Jesus' death makes true for us. The central promise is by having our sins forgiven, we will be able to be in the presence of God again. That's, that's why at the end of the day, it's not, hey, Christ died for me, I'm, I'm off now, and I'll see you later, God. It's having been justified by faith through Jesus Christ, we are reunited with God. The whole reason that we need our sin taken care of is so that we can re-enter into Eden to be with God forever. I love the hymn, we only sing it on Easter, um, Christ the Lord is risen today. In fact, most of the time we sing it the day before Easter, it's like Christ the Lord is risen tomorrow. Charles Wesley, great hymn. In one of the stanzas he says, death in vain forbids him rise. Christ has opened paradise. That's what Christ's death did. It reopened the way to God. And it makes good on this promise at the very beginning of Matthew. You know, at the beginning of the gospel, When the angel comes and tells Mary what to do, he says in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, Behold, this is a prophecy from Isaiah. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the end of Matthew, the very last line of Matthew, which we'll get to in two weeks, Jesus tells his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go make disciples of all the nations baptizing them and teaching them to obey all my commands. And behold, Emmanuel, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The promise in the encounter we have with Jesus is the way to God has been opened. Your sins have been paid for. Now what will you do about it? What will you do with this man on the cross? Well, here's the last thing. Jesus died on the cross because... It was the only way for God to save his people from their sins. It's the only way. At the beginning, right before that passage on Emmanuel, in Matthew 1, 21, it says, you're going to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In fact, that's what the name Jesus means. It's the same name, basically, as the name Joshua. And it means God saves. God saves, right? So this shouldn't really have been a big surprising twist at the end of the story that the guy named God saves saves his people at the very end of the story. Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. And the amazing thing is the moment that the presence of God comes out from the temple, the moment that Jesus dies, the curtain is split, the presence of God is out, you know, it starts doing stuff in the world. 
More miraculous than the ground shaking, the curtain being torn into, more miraculous than the sun being blotted out, is the moment that this, this veil is torn, we get two conversions. Two conversions. You know, Jesus, in, in Matthew's gospel, it's all about people. It's all about people. Matthew is, has these big teaching blocks, but, but it's all about what happens when people encounter Jesus. And in Jesus' death, you get two encounters that illustrate that everybody who looks on the cross is going to have to do something with it. The first one is right after Jesus dies, something totally unexpected happens. After the curtain is torn and the presence of God comes out, all of a sudden, you look down and in the text it says, there was a centurion and those who were with him who were keeping watch over Jesus. And when they saw the earthquake and what took place when Jesus died, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Okay, this is really unlikely. I'll tell you why. First, because the centurion is somebody who is so outwardly far from God. This is a Gentile. This is a person who is an oppressor of the people of God. And to boot, this is somebody who's probably seen a lot of crucifixions in his day. This is somebody who is familiar with death, familiar with brutality, somebody who is not afraid to literally have blood on his hands. And he's just, this is another day at the office for him, watching another crucifixion. But something happens to where he's seen maybe hundreds of crucifixions, but he's never seen a crucifixion quite like this before. This centurion is a picture to us of those who are far from God, those who are unlikely to come to God, those who are despised by the people of God, those who had a direct hand in killing the Son of God. This is somebody who probably participated in the crucifixion itself. And all of a sudden, after nailing this person to a cross, he realizes, this is not like a normal person. This is a son of God. This is the son of God. This is like, for us, anybody that we can conceive of that we would think, that person will never come to God. That person is too far. I wouldn't even invite them to church. They're so far gone. This, it reminds me, both of these conversions, there have been kind of public conversions the past couple of weeks that I thought, this is exactly what they would have thought. There's this tattoo artist famous for the show L.A. Inc. and Miami Inc. named Kat Von D. I wasn't familiar with this person really before her conversion. Known for a makeup line called Witches, deep into the occult, a music artist, far from God, far from Christian culture, anti-Christian in so many ways until a week ago at Switzerland Baptist Church in Vive, Indiana, she was baptized. She was baptized. And in this long video she put out, she said, you know what? It started with getting sober and then throwing away all of the books about the occult and sorcery. And then that wasn't enough. I realized that there was something in my life that was missing, and I found what I was missing in Jesus Christ. That's the centurion. That's the centurion. Somebody that, no, it wasn't even on your radar. But once the presence of God gets loose, people begin to turn to him. The last thing is maybe even more miraculous than that. In verse 57, it says that when the evening came, 
There was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had had cut in the rock. And they rolled a great stone over the entrance of the tomb, and they went away. You need to know three things about Joseph here as we close. He was rich, he was a Pharisee, and he was a disciple of Jesus. This is like that game, Two Truths and a Lie, you know, where you say things and you're like, okay, I've, I've you know, skied, I've done this, I've done this. If you asked any Jew, two truths and a lie. Yes, he was rich. Yes, he was a Pharisee. Cannot believe that he was a disciple of Jesus. Why? Because these are the two groups that Jesus spends the most time talking about in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, the Pharisees, they get their own section of woes in chapter 23. Woe to the Pharisees. These guys, these religious leaders are out for themselves. They are hypocrites. They are whitewashed tombs. The strongest words that Jesus says in all the Gospels are directed at these guys. These people keep people from coming into the kingdom of God. Wow. Not a friend of the Pharisees. But maybe the only thing more prohibitive than being a Pharisee in this Gospel, we talked about this about five weeks ago, is somebody who is wealthy and trusting in their wealth. Remember Jesus says, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. Well, the only thing harder than that would be like a rich person who is also a Pharisee. That would be impossible. Do you remember what his disciples said right after that? Then who can be saved? Then who could possibly be saved? If, if these people can't get in, who could be saved? You remember what Jesus says? With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. You couldn't get somebody who was better on the outside but further from God on the inside than Joseph of Arimathea. He's rich and he's a Pharisee. But the first time we ever hear of him in, in the Gospels, he had secretly been a follower of Jesus. You know, the other Gospels report on this too. The Gospel of John probably best says... He had secretly been following Jesus because he was afraid of the Jews. Maybe he was there that night when the Sanhedrin decided to put Jesus to death and he voiced his opinion against it, but he was overridden. Maybe he was like Nicodemus who, John tells us, comes with him afterwards because they were both Pharisees to bury Jesus. Maybe he was just somebody who had an internal turmoil going on and he was slowly turning to Christ. We actually don't know anything other than this is the moment where he decided to take his faith public in Jesus. I'm in. After seeing that, after seeing Jesus die, after seeing the promises of God, after looking for the kingdom to come, this is it. About three days ago, there was an article that came out about, uh, that was written by a woman named Ayan Hirsi Ali. She was born as a Muslim, into a Muslim culture. She was a Muslim until she started to have moral problems with Islam. Like, my gut sense of what is right and what my faith tells me is right are not the same. So she becomes an atheist. And she is well-known. She is a writer. She's an author. She's a social justice worker. She had actually been a, a member of parliament in the Netherlands. She is now a personality that it was part of the new atheism 20 years ago talking about the only way to really be good is without God. And all of a sudden, two days ago, she writes an article called Why I Am Now a Christian. And in the article, she talks about 
that she had this sense of what was right. She is a very self-righteous person in the best sense, not in the hypocritical sense, but in the way of she knows what's right. And what, what her guiding sense of what is true about the world led her from Islam to atheism to this uncomfortable state where she's like, you know what? I actually think I need to do a U-turn out of atheism and become a Christian. She says in the article that she has been on this quest to look for something that gives life meaning and purpose. And the only place to truly find it is in this man, Jesus Christ, who was crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago so that our sins can be forgiven, we can be brought back to God, and we can be with him forever. It's the only way. Just like the Pharisee, Joseph of Arimathea, this righteous person to all who look on has said, you know what, none of that is enough if it's not for Jesus. So we are invited in this story. The application here is easy. We're encountering the cross, and we've got to do something with Jesus. We have to do something with Jesus. Believe in him, reject him, fall down and call him Lord. You have to do something with Jesus on the cross. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And what we do in communion, as we talked about last week, is we are actually addressing this question every time we come to the table. Who do you think Jesus is? The Bible, this story in Matthew, presents him as a perfect God-man who came to earth to reopen the way to God so that you and I, if we will confess our sins and believe in him, can be reunited with our Father in heaven forever. If you believe that, come to the table of Jesus. Take from the bread that is his body and this cup that is his blood. It's a new covenant for you because Jesus died. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and that even though this story can be so cliche for us, we can just pass over it. Yes, of course, Jesus died on the cross. Help us to see again how radical it is that Jesus died upon the cross for us. Lord, turn our hearts this morning to you, that we can call upon you, we can be reunited with you, we can have fellowship with you and with each other because of this one moment in history. Jesus died for us. Father, we thank you. We praise you now. In your son's name, amen.